Hey folks, this is Eric Wright, the host of your Disco Posse podcast. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at Veeam Software. Everything you need for your data protection needs, regardless of your hybrid or multi-cloud infrastructure, please do check it out. Uh, if you go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse, that'll take you right to the place where you can, you can download it. You can even buy it right on the spot. Uh, you can get trials. Uh, whether it's on your cloud, whether it's your Office 365. I use the stuff every day myself, so I stand by it. Uh, you got my personal uh, warranty on, on how much I love this platform. Anyways, let's get on to the show. This is one of the fun episodes because I've been waiting a long time to do this. I get to bring on JJ Askar. JJ is just a fantastic human. He's somebody that, whether he even knew it or not, has been influencing so much of what I do. He's just an, uh, just such a giving person, an amazing technologist, has so much to, to bring to our industry, into our community. With that, check this episode out. It's JJ Asgar, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I'm JJ Asgar. I'm a developer advocate for the IBM cloud, and I have a rather large gray beard, but I'm not that old. And you're listening to the Disco Posse podcast. One of the fun things, JJ, uh, and the proof of the value of in-person meetups, making long-term, you know, friendships and 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 mm -hmm. opening up opportunities. You and I are kind of proof of this. That by I, I couldn't, I don't even know if I could trace back exactly how we met, <laughs> but it was probably me kind of just like being a fanboy of. You stuff you were doing at the time at Chef, or and it was it might have been mm -hmm. Interop, it might have been a CubeCon. I I can't mm -hmm. recall where it, where it began, but JJ, you you are one of the people who, if I were to say, if I'm modeling what my future, what I believe I would be successful in being a good person and a good advocate for people, take the tech out of it. You're you're one of the you're one on a short list of people who I look to as leading by example, whether you know it or not. Wow, that's, that, thank, thank you, that, that, meant, that means a ton to me. Um, I, I really truly try to, to strive to be, you know, as, 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 um, as Adam Jacob said, not a expletive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this is the, and the other thing, so we're going to cover a couple of things today. One of them is I, I want to kind of talk about, you know, the, I say DevOps before it's be, before it was cool, because you are one of also a few, mm -hmm. you know, small group of people who've been coining the phrase and, and, and uh, owning the title of DevOps as a, as a, a job for a mm -hmm. long time and really your participation. So let's kind of go back to early JJ. Where did it all start? How did you get involved in, in you know, before you're even an advocate or, or whatever we, we, you know, whatever the title is that we're going to, you know, uh, we were, we, you and I were probably were at one point were evangelists. I'm still one because I haven't made it to an advocate yet. I'm getting there, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. JJ. So um, believe it or not, um, 
I started at a small startup here in Austin, Texas called Message One. Um, well, I had some jobs beforehand, but I didn't really start my DevOps career until that was around then. It was about 2009, um, because I have a t-shirt from 2011 that I'll talk about in just a second. Um, but Message One was actually um, Deepak, the CTO from Puppet, was one of the original developers there. Uh, he was actually a mentor of mine at the company. Um, and I was what they would call a, and I'm putting this in air quotes, um, production engineer. So I was responsible for CentOS six boxes all over the world for this company called Message One. And we actually puppetized um, these boxes in 2011 uh, by using an application called Ender which was a glorified for loop bash script. And <laughs> yeah. Basically, it was, it was basically PSSH with some Python in front of it. Um, but it was before Puppet was actually version one. It was like legit, like we had to run Puppet three times against the machine to make sure it was in desired state yeah, because yeah. Puppet wasn't, is the, the, the mapping wasn't right. Um, but yeah, that was about up to 2011 and Dell Technologies had bought them by then. Um, but the reason why I'm starting there is because that's when the exposure to the DevOps movement really started taking hold for me. Um, I believe it was like some random third line manager at Dell had seen somebody talk about DevOps and I'm, it's like, I'm gonna have some of that. Yeah. Forced it down our throats. Because we were just right, we were a bunch of bash jockeys with a little bit of Python trying to get the, the apps to work, a bunch of Java apps to work at the time. Um, but the interesting thing was that I learned from that, um, first of all, how to set up Nagios really, really well, but that's a different conversation. Um, but uh, the, what I learned was instead of having a wall between ops and, and um, development, uh, there needed to, like, I needed to be embedded with developers because I need to understand what they are doing. And for me to be able to understand what they are doing, the, from, for me to understand to run their app, because everything is bespoke, right? Every app out there, everything you do, you don't take something off the shelf and run it in production tomorrow. Your developers are paid to build something just bespoke to run for your business needs. And without me realizing it, I, I got exposure to how these bespoke apps were being run. And I started learning to build the, the human relationships between when something breaks and who to call. And now you really, when you actually boil it down to that, it sounds really, really easy, but in a corporate America, that's really hard because sometimes <laughs> you, right? Exactly. Like, it's, it's, it's like saying NHL hockey, super easy. The puck, the other guy's net. <laughs> A bunch exactly. of times more than they do, right? Yeah. It sounds fundamental. <laughs> now, now go get it done over and over exactly. again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and that, that's how my DevOps movement started was I, I used my, my interpersonal relationships, my ability to like honestly just be a friend and be willing to open my door whenever I can to help somebody because everybody knows this, or at least I hope everybody knows this, that I'm more than willing to help you however I can, or I'll find the right person to help you because I know for a fact that 
I had some lucky things in my career where other people did that for me, which opened up doors for me to be successful. So the only thing I can do is pay it back, right? And to make sure that that door is open for somebody. Like I absolutely adore mentoring engineers who are just trying to learn how to be better engineers. And I'm like, it's not about what language you can write. Hell, I'll argue Emacs versus VI with you all day. Hell, I use them both, right? But no, it's about knowing that you have a support structure and a, and a network. Um, I, joke, I joke about this with people every once in a while and ah, well, what the hell, I'll get it recorded on this podcast, which is the one thing that my dad taught me for my career was um, be a, have a Rolodex, have a network, be able to find the people you need. And what is DevOps? other than just knowing the developer to reach out to or knowing the operator who need, who's there and be willing to sit with them, empathize and sympathize. And hell, if you get put a patch in against the repo, it's not, a, it's not a mean move. If anything, it shows that you care. It shows that you're willing to work with them. Did I answer your question? It did. It's, it's interesting because it seems fundamental a lot of times when we go through these discussions we when we're so used to when it, it's the hard thing how do you impart that capability on people that are kind of not used to going beyond the self and beyond the team and i've found that i've even been admonished for it at work back in the day i remembered i'd have people like hey look you know you don't work for the network team right why 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 are you always over in the network area i'm like exactly well, because I need to, like, I'm having trouble getting servers put online. And, mm -hmm. and so I want to find out, hey, what can I help them? And really, that was always how I would, would phrase it. If like, hey, I know that I'm making your life tough. Yeah. So what can I do better to make sure that you've got everything you need so that I can get my stuff sorted out on the network without causing you problems? Exactly. And it was... It was all, if you frame it as how can I do more for you to make your day better in some small way? And they were like, oh, well, well, here's the problem, you know, mm -hmm. and that was it. It was now open kimono. They felt comfortable exactly. to share. And they're like, look, it's not me. My, the boss is grinding my gears because we've got, we're, we're running out of switch ports. I'm like, mm -hmm. cool. Do you, so what, why is that happening? And ultimately mm -hmm. then we go down the road of why five whys and, and whatever, exactly. but you can't do that if your dear network team <laughs> or please, the Jira ticket. <laughs> yeah. Please light up this, this switch port, exactly. uh, you know, ASAP warmest regards, <laughs> which is like the most, the, the most passive aggressive statement I could ever put at the tail end of an email. I, I, I can, there's no shortage of hell that I face for, and I kind of joke when people, I'm like warmest and kindest of possible regards, you know, like that, that there is no warm regards. You're, nope. you just sent a, a, a faceless, emotionless email to somebody and you said ASAP in it. And then you, what does ASAP mean? As soon as possible. So seven days, that's as soon as possible. I need it in an hour. You better not use email. Right. So, why I went into that thing is like, I was then sort of always questioned, hey, why are you doing this stuff in the lab that we don't do? Like, why are you doing Active Directory? We're a Novell shop. Why are you mm -hmm. doing NT stuff? We've got an app team that handles that. Yep. But then eventually what happens is they're like, hey, 
you're that weird kid that's using Active Directory. I, I think we're about to do something with a company and they, they, they use that thing that you use. And like, it literally was just a matter of like that kind of Rolodex concept of knowing that, Hey, you know, a little about this, let's find out how much, or can you help out? And, and really it became a, that phrasing, like you said, of like, how can I mentor somebody or help somebody mm -hmm. in a way? Because it's just, look, I've had it done to me. And so that team that I reach out to, they come back to me and they are happy to share. And they're mm -hmm. like, hey, so I got this, this new thing we're wanting to do. How'd you like to jump in? And now all of a sudden you're doing fun things and new things. And, but it begins with that mundane stuff that you just don't want to deal with. I believe the watershed moment for me to, to play off of what you're saying was actually with the networking team at Message One. Um, I think his name was Hoffer, maybe. Um, I don't think, maybe not. Anyway, uh, I remember that we had, we, so we, it was a follow the sun, but unfortunately follow the sun, we were all in central time zone. Yes, yeah, so, so we follow the sun, but the sun goes down at 9 p.m. and it comes back up at 8 a.m. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so we, we, would, we would do deployments at the time because we were not agile by any standard. We were very watershed at like two or three in the morning um because it was a emergency system and we had to make sure that you know anyway long story short i remember the watershed moment of uh we had a network outage of something going on and um i remember he came to me or he, he sent me a, a message through whatever im system we were using at the time i was like jj get into the f5 and uh just you know double check that the virtual servers are up and running and the health checks are checked and i'm like the hell is an F5? <laughs> and I, I was like, I, I, I genuinely don't know what you're talking about. I don't have the vernacular to be able to communicate. Like I was a Linux admin. I was uh, slinging IP tables and all that jazz. Like I could do that time network, but I had no exposure to what an F5 was at the time. And he was just like, wait, what? Like it's an outage. We have like, we were trying to deploy something People are going to be online really soon and we get dinged every minute that we're down because it was like a big thing for the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I had no idea what you're talking about. So obviously I escalated and got past, past the outage and all that jazz. But I remember I reached out to him in the future and I'm like, okay, I have no idea what an F5 is. Can you talk to me and show me what's going on? And he's like, JJ, you just opened up a whole new portion of your career here. So I, I learned a lot about rabbit hole Neo. <laughs> exactly. But the, the reason why I brought this up is that um, this is the time we still had data centers, right? We weren't on all clouds or whatever. We actually had physical hardware. And I remember one of the machines here in Austin, it was a place called um, CoreNap, I believe. Uh, and I remember I walked in there and I was like, Oh, oh, that's the F5, because it obviously had the F5 logo on it. And I looked at it, and I'm like, huh, that power cable in the back is literally teetering off the, oh, the machine. <laughs> and I, I remember like picking up the phone, because I had built this relationship with my network admin. I had his phone number. He was like, have you ever any problems? Just call me. And I remember I picked it up, and I'm like, uh, hey, hey, offer. Um, so you know that F5 that I was wondering about? And he's like, oh yeah, hey JJ, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hey, so I'm standing in the data center. Um, it's literally hanging on by a thread. Should I push this back in? And he's like, what? 
So it, the phones were very good, but I took a picture of it and I took a picture and sent it to him. He's like, oh my God, expletive, expletive, expletive. <laughs> Push that in right now. That is literally the single point of failure of our whole network. And I'm like, well, I'm very glad I had this connection with you. <laughs> so. But it's but, uh, the power of what, what that does is, like I said, there's twofold. Number one, you build a relationship so you can better interact for other stuff. Mm-hmm. But he lit it up right for you. Like, guess what? You're about to learn something which may help you later on in life. Exactly. And exactly. those are every, like mentoring what people don't realize too is the mentor wins probably mm-hmm. the most of this. Mm-hmm. It's just that they may be more practiced at it. But a mentor is simply somebody who's been down the road before and they've got a way in which they can impart wisdom and hopefully help you to kind of measure the, the success of that wisdom, you know, that yes. you, of you taking it in, you know, it's, there's no, like, I'm a certified, you know, grade two mentor. Like it's more <laughs> like, Hey, look, I've done this. Let me help you out. And hopefully this is helpful. But inevitably I've gotten the most out of every mentoring relationship and engagement that I've had because it made me better at understanding how to bring somebody through that journey with me. And also I kind of stole some knowledge of something that I didn't know along the way. So I kind of, it's like, this is what the whole purpose of the podcast is entirely for my, my selfish, you know, needs <laughs> to learn more about other people. It just so happened that a lot of other people pick up along the way and learn good yeah. stuff. So when, so, you know, JJ, when you, this behavior doesn't start with the first job. Mm-hmm. When did young JJ reach out to somebody to help? And I, I can tell just in everything that we've talked about in our time together, I know you, you're that, you've, you've been a good person forever. Like for the longest, as long as you've walked the earth, <laughs> I know this is in you. Where did it come from? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I don't, I don't really know. Like, I don't, th- I don't, like, I, I know of a couple of watershed moments of like, professionally this this these things happening but when it comes to just the the confidence to be able to say that i don't know or i need help it was it was very sputtered um i remember uh an interview maybe it was actually for message one at the time um i got put in with one of their senior developers and they went like they, they kept asking me the questions to see the limit of my knowledge. Right. Like the, the typical interview process of just be like, okay, so how does, how does DNS work? Right. And you talk about what, what goes on and how, or you hit, hit HTTP, don't www.google.com. What happens? And it's usually a conversation of like, what is actually DNS? Okay. Let's talk about DNS. Okay, let's talk about the Linux server. And you just keep going farther and farther. See where that limit, limit of your knowledge is. And I, I, I guess, I mean, obviously I passed that interview and I got that job. But I remember when I was talking to that senior engineer later on um, about this situation and how, he inter- how they interviewed me. Um, it was, if I remember correctly, he, they said it was a... Um, it was a trick question um, where it was supposed to make me stumble. And the reason why I got past it is because I said, honestly, I'd Google this. 
right? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I, I hit a point where I was like, I, I genuinely don't know any bit farther. And I would have actually Googled maybe four or five back. And I'm just trying to play off of knowledge I didn't have. And that watershed moment there triggered my, my confidence to be able to say, it's okay not to know everything, right? Like, Here's one, how one I would find out, right? It was exactly. It, this is the big difference of, I find the, the further I get in life, the more I'm willing to admit I don't know. And I'm, exactly. how, I'm fantastically proud when I don't know something because exactly. there's always somebody who's like, ooh, well, let me help you with that. Like that's exactly. the beauty part is you're playing on just natural human behavior that they, people want to share stuff. And so when you genuinely say, look, I'm, you got me on that one, you know, yep. they're like, all right. I'm glad you said that <laughs> rather than just trying to push your way through it. So I have a question for you. Um, so we talked about the DevOps movement and how like building the personal network to be able to get those questions done. Where in your, in your world, in your situation, in, in your career, where was the line between tribal knowledge and doing the right thing? Because tribal knowledge, like I've heard in conversations in the DevOps movement is that if you're not careful you get tribal knowledge spread out throughout so many of these different people because they build these networks, build these connections, but then there's no centralized way to communicate this stuff or, or mainly because maybe person A and person B have knowledge in two different areas. Do you see what I'm saying? Like wh yeah. where is tri tribal knowledge for you in this? Well, this is, it, it's interesting because I, I call it proprietary tribal knowledge. I think this okay. is the, the boundary that I find we get buried in is that people want to have some exclusive knowledge and, right right exactly yeah. and it's an unfortunate behavior that we all do there's two things we want to have one knowledge because we want to be able to own something that mm -hmm. is exclusive and what like i'm not going to talk about power or whatever like but yeah. it underneath it there's that's a, a portion of it right mm -hmm. so we want to be right it's a beautiful feeling. Yeah. And then the second piece is just that, but, but I mean, like that's, that's it. Like basically that's the core is, you know, we want to have this ownership of a thing. And then also from there stems, you know, what can I, how can I use this to better myself? That's, mm -hmm. let's just take the core selfish thing we want. What becomes amazing for me is when understanding that helping someone else helps me more than it helps them. Uh, yeah. Then that becomes the thing. Like I said, it's, you have to be selfish in a way. What really opened up for me was, and it's a weird moment. I remember emailing and it's just, it's words. It's the simplicity <laughs> of the way we phrase it is we had, I worked with a fellow on, we had a problem and we like, we just hunkered down for like five hours and we solved this crazy gnarly production problem. It was in a directory services issue. So we're doing all sorts of wild stuff. We chase it down, we figure it out, we solve it. And I send out a status email to the whole team and saying, I was able to get the things up and running, found it. it this is the script that was run. This is how it was. And I get a phone call seconds after I hit send. And the guy, this guy fell that I worked with and he's like, dude, you got to be very careful because you just took credit for what five people worked on. And I was mm. like, Oh man. Yeah. All just because in my way of, I'm like, mm -hmm. cause I pressed 
return on the keyboard. That was the way that I sold. And then from that moment on, I said, never again will mm -hmm. I own something because, and from this point forward, and I've used this theory for everything, we succeed and I fail. Ah, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah, it's very good. So whenever we succeed, it's because of a collective. And mm -hmm. whenever a failure occurs, I have to own how did I contribute towards that? Exactly. And how can I be better so that that doesn't occur again? And it was tough. It was a really, really tough thing. So for me, it's like that tribal knowledge was like, I loved, you know, that thing. And so what I've learned later on in life too is I much rather would seek the right answer than to seek being right. That's, that's, that's almost poetic. <laughs> I'm sure I stole that from somebody. So I'll, I should say this is, I'm sure a learned thing that, but ultimately, yeah. so that, so that, that's that tribal. So the tribal yeah. knowledge thing is becomes like, how can I expand the, the breadth of this? So at least if I don't know the thing that I know how I can <laughs> learn the thing. And that is the, what allowed me to create like this Venn diagram of all the teams, like who mm -hmm. needs to know enough about this thing so that they can know where the handoffs occur and, and stuff like yep. that. And that was the, and it, it's hard. Like this is just core behavioral psychology. Mm -hmm. Like this is stuff that's inborn to us. And we teach it. Look, my kids, the moment that they learn that there's a nice thing, they learn that they want to own it. Mm. You can't help mm -hmm. it. They want to mm -hmm. pull it and they want to keep it. And then when you take it away, they will have a visceral reaction. And that doesn't go away. <laughs> it's like, that's why we call it tribal in effect because like a core group of people mm -hmm. carry this knowledge and they may tell it through stories. They may do whatever, but effectively, you know that they kind of like own that bit of information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a weird thing because it's, it's, it's hard to get people to let go of that. And Absolutely. The, the more that they let go, it's that it's the, the one of those like there there is no spoon moments like you realize like <laughs> and we don't own anything you know and it becomes yeah. like we've seen it play out with stuff like Conway's law right mm -hmm. that we develop systems based on the pattern of communication between people yeah. so if you try to get a team to use microservices architectures but they work as a waterfall development <laughs> team I got bad news for you kid it ain't yep. gonna happen <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly that's good. Now, so this is the neat thing of it becomes the, like the power of people in the DevOps movement cannot be understated. And the power of people in open technology communities cannot be understated. Mm -hmm. And what I found, and, and we, we talked before we started here, you know, the, the phrase I use is, you know, firing, putting it on GitHub does not an open community make, right? Yes. We don't automatically, open source does not mean open community. And technologies don't define the community as well. Mm -hmm. And this is the neat thing. You started and you've covered it. You've done a lot of open work. Yes. And so, and so let, let's kind of go through how, how did you begin that? And kind of how have you seen that story play out in your own experience? Yeah, um, I'm actually going to reference a blog post slash essay I wrote. Um, which I can I can get to you after the fact here and put in some show notes or whatever, um, because uh, when just as I was uh, wrapping up my um, my time at Chef Software, um, I moved on from there. Um, I gained I, I I gained just so much open source knowledge while I was there, but um, because of working with OpenStack 
um, that, that community and things like that, that I started getting, um, I, started, I started being able to advise people on these types of things because I, just, I had just a flood of knowledge when it comes to this stuff and exposure, which is another thing. If you're not exposed to these, these types of communities and cultures, um, it's really hard to just to, to put it together, uh, to, 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 to take it as a corporation and move forward. Um, but I'll, re I'll reference this, this little pod, uh, blog post slash essay or whatever, because I came up with something while I was writing it up, which was I had this corporation that'll go unnamed um, who wanted to open source a bunch of their, their internal tooling for um, an integration between one of their offerings because they thought if they open sourced it, then they could get open source developers to do free work for them. <laughs> that, oh, yes. that was out of all the conversations I had with them, that was the underpinning of it all. And first of all, I obviously tried to level set with them saying it doesn't work that way by any standard, but they were dead set on that. And they were like, well, we're going to create a GitHub repo and a wiki. And we'll, we're going to be open source because we can get the, those open source developers. And I, I, I remember getting off that call and then I just started writing. And that's what this blog post came out because as I was listening to that call and hearing these random middle managers just argue over these things, I remember looking out my window at my, um, my, the house I was living in at the time, and there was this big park in, in, uh, across the fence where they eventually put a bunch of soccer fields in, or football if you're not American. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember they were doing a trash cleanup at the time just to kind of get it ready for all that stuff. And it was a bunch of volunteers. And I looked at it and I'm like, that's open source software in a nutshell. It's organizing a trash cleanup. Being an open source leader is just trying to pick, get together a bunch of people to, to pick up trash. Now, bear with me, it's a little bit of a journey, but we'll get there. Um, at least in Texas, not all, the, not all places, at least in Texas, you can't just go and say, hey, I'm gonna put a flyer up and we're gonna do a trash pickup um in some park or whatever you have to get permits right you also have to have um trash bags for people you have to have gloves pii especially now with COVID. Yeah. you have to have water because texas is effing hot and people will dehydrate you have to have locations and volunteers for pickup areas if, depending on how big it is there's a lot of logistics you have to worry about now when you open source a piece of software and you put it out on github or a wiki, you don't think about all the things you've got to do. You've got to make sure that you have good management. You've got to have the way that people can evangelize you doing it. You can't just throw it up on GitHub. There's hundreds of thousands of repos on, on if not millions of repos on GitHub. It just gets lost in the noise. Also, nobody cares about the logistics you have to do to get something open sourced, right? Where they don't want to know that they're just there to write some code for you, assuming you first of all created something that they can actually commit to. And you have a community of somebody or somebody to evangelize it. And they are hopefully nice enough to be able to go, go through it. That takes it one step farther where you think about that meetup. Everybody tries to start a meetup at some point in their career because of something you're passionate about. More onto it, good for you. But how many times have you been in that meetup where you're the only person there? And maybe if you're lucky, one person might show up. They may show up the next time, but they can't make it the third or whatever. And there's a trickle of people. But have you ever been to a meetup where all of a sudden 
that person who's organizing or whatever becomes a just a mean expletive person, um, people stop going. And that's exactly what happens with open source. If you do not have a good community based around it, unless you are absolutely like set on using it, people will just disappear from your open source project. So I realize it's very like, like no, wishy-washy and hand-washy. It's, it's but, a beautiful analogy, right? It's, yeah. and I think that's what it, <laughs> like, there's the headline for the podcast. Open source is trash. <laughs> <laughs> With JJ Asker. Uh, but so here's the, this is my thing that this is the, the one that gets me and it just, it, it drives me nuts. And when someone says, hey, would be great if we could get this feature. I'd, I'm trying to get it to work for this, whatever. And the reply is submit a PR, which is basically the same as saying duly noted. Yep. Yep. F you. Bless <laughs> your heart. Whatever yep. the colloquial yep. phrase is for <laughs> go F yourself. I don't have time for your BS. That yep. is what the that's what the receiving end is when someone says submit a PR. I don't discount that a somebody who knows what they're doing, they're like, mm -hmm. cool, cool. I'll do yep. it. Right. Yep. But most of the people that are looking to use this platform or product or tool or script or whatever, they needed help. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's kind of what, so look, is there a better way to ask? Definitely. That's what a contributing document's for, right? That's yes. what the wiki's for. That's what making sure now we have Slack channels or Gitter or whatever the communication is. Make sure there's ways that in which you can handle that conversation so that it doesn't just end with submit a PR. Now, let me, let me, let me uh, play off of that for a second. Where, uh, do you know who Major Hayden is? I know Major, uh, a good, another good human. Uh, somebody yes. who I've followed a lot through the open source world. Yes, he's, he's, he's phenomenal. Um, and I remember there was some interview or something that I, I heard him on. And he told the story of the opposite of that, where somebody brought in a PR to one of his open source projects. And he was like, I'm, I, he was like it was this massive PR with a bunch of new features and things like that. And he, he, he had, he mulled over um, how to say no. Right. Because he didn't want to bring in all these new features. And he, he came up with this amazing statement, which was, this PR is phenomenal. Thank you for all this work, but I'm not ready for this awesomeness yet. And it was such a beautiful, simple statement of saying, thank you for doing this work. Thank you for putting this up, but I can't, main, or I can't up, upstream this patch because it just takes it out of the scope of the original project, blah, blah, blah. But the way he described it to say no, which to you're saying earlier about the, using the correct words to yeah. to ex, to do this, um, is is this beautiful thing that you just can only gain through experience, especially working in open source. Um, another challenge that people think also, and this is just being as we are in the northern hemisphere of of the western northeast northwestern hemisphere. Um, we think, we think we're the only developers in the world. So our colloquialisms, the way we talk, we don't realize that there's a whole nother world of engineers out there. That the words we choose in these statements, especially the asynchronous way, can have ripple effects to an engineer's confidence, to an engineer's ability to give back to open source. There's, there's this whole thing that without you realizing it, as an open source engineer, you become global. 
you become cognizant of other cultures and making sure that you don't um, choose the word, for instance, like chef de pushy um, <laughs> or yeah. for one of their app or for one of their apps, not realizing what that meant in Korean. <laughs> Whoopsie. Yeah. So, so it's, it's those little things um, like that. So it's, it's interesting. It really is. Well, this is the, the, the globalization of thought yes. and participation and reach. It's a really tough boundary. We, and I say we being the, the, the royal, no, the not royal, I'll say the, the republic we, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the states and provinces we, that we are, we obviously the, the largest consumer base of a lot of software is typically North America. And I like to say that because it's really the United States, but hey, I'm Canadian, so I got to try and at least <laughs> pretend I'm, I'm America's hat, uh, right? <laughs> but it, the simplest little thing, like spelling virtualization with an S, mm-hmm. means you suddenly have a UK audience that loves you. Yep. It's, it's little nuanced things that can be, you know, really beneficial. And that's why like OpenStack faced this, a lot of, you know, you know internationalization, docs available in multiple languages look we don't need to have the code necessarily be across languages because we still look the the language of science is english whether right or wrong it's a tough one right because a lot of the research comes out of english-speaking nations Mm -hmm. and others nations are forced to do this technology certifications predominantly written in english and Mm -hmm. then backfilled into other languages so it's really tough that people are taking this taking a test in a language that's not their own yes absolutely and like so what other resources are they missing so that's that's the other thing about open communities is that you have to whether you can act at large or not you at least have to think that way exactly and be ready to accept that someone's going to say hey i got a i got a wee problem that we're going to bump into with certain things like we shouldn't have called it pushy you know like little things i remember doing this even like server naming with a company i was in and we i worked on the global architecture team and all of a sudden we were like how do we define a server so we would use like meaningful phrases it had to be like less than 15 characters but try to make it as meaningful as possible not bias yeah exactly exactly. (laughs) so we're trying to come up with these basically like ham radio ids for, for server names in order to fit it in and we had to immediately think of well what does this mean in another part of the world like is this crunching together of letters going to be uh, a, a negative connotation somewhere else mm-hmm. and we had to be mindful of that and so we ended up with like the most nonsensical words and we just called it said someone said the back goes why don't we just call it like srv for like server <laughs> and then we'll just give it a number and it yeah. was like but the, how will you know if it's one or the other said like, well just make a database you can search it up <laughs> Like, we'll figure it out. Like, you'll remember the names. And we kind of like mulled over. And then it was exactly how we went. And you and me, because we had to say, let's let's get specifics out of it and get localizations out of it. Think bigger. And then we'll, we'll become it. So it's funny that, and same thing with open communities, the moment that I think about the largest audience, it changes how I begin the first piece of code, the first docs. Like immediately think about the person that's going to read this has no effing idea how I came up with this first thought. Let's, let's give them that entry journey, right? And exactly. it's, 
it changed the way that I write documentation and that I do certain things because Wait, 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 wait. You write documentation? Yeah, that's, that's the only place I live. I'm, I'm a proud contributor to Kubernetes, to OpenStack and, and the Docs one. project. And that was the one thing. So OpenStack, we, here's the DevOps that will, when someone says DevOps, depends how you, how do you just define DevOps? I said, it's a way, the developers say it's so I can get these goddamn ops people out of my way so I can get code to production for once. And yep. then the ops team says it's a way that I can at least codify stuff so the developers don't hand me this, you know, artisanally crafted bespoke <laughs> thing every time. <laughs> so depending on your lens, mm -hmm. there was a different definition. And so when we had documentation, the OpenStack docs project, we met with people and we would say like, hey, look, every time a new distribution or new release comes out, I literally follow every line of the documentation and I build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I would find where it didn't work. I would submit changes, push it back into the code and, and go through this whole thing. And then the, there was this real sort of, sort of warring factions where people were saying, we shouldn't use modules. We shouldn't use packages. We should use like build from source for everything. Mm. I was like, I, I appreciate the purity with which you're approaching this. Mm -hmm. None of the people I know on the ops team will ever launch this if they have to run a make command. Yep. No idea what they're doing. Yep. I'm like, you're in the deep end of the pool, which is <laughs> super great that you, we can do this. And we, even me, like I get what you're saying, yeah. like not broadly adoptable. <laughs> sure. And sure. I had to understand that not cool for them because they're like, you're going to use a package and then we're going to deprecate some piece of shit in that package. Or mm. there's going to be some dependency that's going to break at some point. I'm like, and there we will find that the hard way, right? But that's what Zool's for to find those problems. <laughs> a bit of magic, right? But again, it was like changing the lens through with which yes. you view what you're doing allowed me to, like, it was Zen like when I figured it out. And I still struggle all the time. But when I stop and I write a blog, I have a process of like, okay, what was cool? You know, I have a flow in which I go through. I have a formula that I use because I know it's been able to work because that's how I read it. And yeah. I'm my audience, right? So it's like, how do I make sure that I'm like being introductory through it and, and working with, you know, publishers too, building like small, like eBooks, like same thing. You, there's so many assumptions that we bake into it. And when we're in open communities, when we're trying to nurture people's journey, boy, mm -hmm. boy, it's hard to, you got to break those assumptions down. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now here's the, you know, inclusivity and exclusivity. Mm -hmm. Tribal knowledge founded on exclusivity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a sense of, of ownership of the thing. And even, God help me, right? Like even the word owner is a, is a tough thing, right? Especially right now. Exactly. How do we, how do we do it better? JJ, like what have you seen where you've been able to watch people feel like they belong and what can we do more of with that so the way that i i've seen successes with open communities open source projects and trying to get nerds to do free work for you um that's that's a joke hopefully somebody can <laughs> exactly. um but <laughs> um is 
is challenging and situational. And I realize that's a cop-out answer, but it's true. Um, every single community has its own lifespan and or um, ecosystem. And the only way to truly grow those is to either, you first of all, become a full member of the community. So if you're, if you're doing Kubernetes work, if you want to help grow or see successes there, you have to involve yourself in the SIGs that your or special interest groups that you focus that you are going to focus on. And I wouldn't say Kubernetes as a community is a poster child example, but it is successful. That's out without denying that. There are other open source communities that um, gain success over time by using consistency and some beacon of light that everybody can rally behind. Um, usually one of the disadvantages of our industry is that we have celebrities, right? Where there are certain people out there that everybody knows, like Alice Goldfuss. Gold, I, I trip over it every time. Yeah. <laughs> Goldfuss. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Um, perfect example of a beacon of light when it comes to SRE and the way that she 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 opens up the um, the SRE movement, uh, Kelsey Hightower, right? Another perfect example. So we have people that communities grow around, but there are smaller communities that don't have those celebrities that have some consistent meeting place. Like whether it be to your point, Gitter or Slack or my favorite still IRC. Um, <laughs> I know. So or good. Discord is the new is the new uh, place I see a lot of people congregating to, right? Yeah. Yes, it is true. It's just another chat app on my. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> another thing that I don't <laughs> want to see the notifications from. Exactly. Um, oh, and at the rate we're going, I hear that iMessage is going to become the next Slack too because of the next oh. version of. Anyway, that's a different conversation. Um, but yes, the, the consistency, the ability to have lower barriers of entry. The ability to, to, to bring people into the circle and people to champion, right? Um, I actually remember um, it was my birthday. It was actually on my birthday. Um, and just before I, was, I left the company at a time to move to Chef, um, or no, it was a year before. That's oh, right. It was a year before um, than, than me really doing it. I was trying to put a PR into Knife Rackspace at the time because we were a Rackspace user. And I got on the um, Octothorpe or hashtag or whatever you want to call it. It's called an Octothorpe. Um, <laughs> I uh, like that. Kicking it old school. Yeah. Uh, chef on, on IRC. And there was this gentleman named Jay Timberman on Holloway that um, popped up when I asked a question. And they're like, hey, cool. So you're actually using this. And I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to have some problems. I'm having some weird API issues or whatever. Um, and it turns out the readme is different than this. And they're like, oh, cool. And they, they actually walked me through on IRC at the time how to put the PR in. And that was actually my first, uh, first commit to not core chef. Um, but I found out a year later when I started getting into the process, I was really in depth in the 
public community of, of chef that I was like, so who is this Jay Timberman and who's Holloway? And um, I remember they're like, it's Joshua Timberman, JJ. And I'm like, you mean the guy who like wrote all these chef cookbooks? And he's like, yeah, he's like the main operator of chef. Like he's, he was the first employee there. And I'm like, whoa, okay, cool. <laughs> and then, so who's Holloway? JJ, that's, that's Adam Jacob. And I'm like, wait, the guy who wrote Chef stopped and walked me through putting in a PR for an hour and a half on my birthday just to, just to like teach me how to do this. And he took time out of his day to walk me through putting a PR in. And I was like, this is phenomenal. Like the ability to have somebody there to willing to, to, to say that, yes, you are important. Yes, you found that thing that we did not know was a problem. And yes, please, I will sit there and be that guiding light to get you to get, get where you need to be. It's even um, the simplest thing is acknowledgement, right? It, yeah. Some embrace. And sadly, we've, we, we joke about it in the Twitter format of like, you know, oh man, once again, United burns me at the gate. And then <laughs> you get the generic reply from a human using... Saying, you know, follow and DM, we can maybe help you out. And they legitimately want to help out. And the yeah. problem with that generic reply is that we've learned to hate it on Twitter because that's, well, it's a sea of, sea of hate, <laughs> 280 yes. characters at a time. But so here it is so much the opposite of like people that are they, just knowing that they're out there to try to help you. At least you're yes. like encouraged to go a little further. Absolutely. And I think that's the, so here's the thing, and I'm going to, I'm going to posit this to you, uh, JJ. Open communities at scale are doomed to fail. And that is because we are going to hit some boundary, whether language, culture, mm -hmm. functionality, opinion, function of the platforms, Mm -hmm. or tools that we have to diverge. Mm. And I, I don't like that it happens, but I know, look, it's, it's big tent for OpenStack. Yeah. Oh, right? no. Oh, right? It's like, oh. I, I think of like, well, let's put it all together. And then, so here we are at Kubernetes. And I said, like, Kubernetes is, is at this inflection point where we're going to have to make a hard decision at one point. And look, Adam is a great example at Chef, who at some point, or you know, Solomon at Docker, which mm -hmm. I would posit maybe a little, little tougher on his phrasing, mm -hmm. you know, with the choices of how he chooses to say no. But there is a point where, at a certain scale, someone's going to have to say no. This doesn't, doesn't yeah. service the core of this platform. And I, I agree. Um, I, I genuinely, I, I agree that. Uh, we can't just throw Garrett up and make everyone use Garrett anymore because that that's a stopgap, right? Yeah. Like there there are the the idea that an open community will splinter, but the beauty of it is is that it will splinter into it's it's like it's uh, it's like the um, what is it um, open spaces. It's like open spaces, right? Yeah. Where the chaos of putting, like everybody comes together to produce the, the, the ideas that they want to talk to, to put the little post-its up. 
But to your point, when a, the community is too big, it has to split into multiple different little smaller communities to talk about the things they were interested in. And there are still successes in there, but they all, all those people in those open spaces, like at the very beginning of the core is that large scale and problem where you can't have everyone have that, that world. So there is, there is a way to continue those, those conversations. There are ways to be successful. Same thing with open source projects and open communities is that yes, they will splinter. And that's kind of what the, the SIGs are inside of, inside of Kubernetes. They, right. they try to preemptive the, those things. So they're not everyone in Kubernetes slash Kubernetes on GitHub anymore. Now it's Kubernetes slash SIG slash whatever to, to make sure that they, they're manageable size. Very astute and very, very um, forward thinking when it comes to that community. But to your point, those communities grow too, and they're going to have to splinter. Like you, you have to have anyway. I'm 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 babbling now. But yeah, no, but it's, it's it really it. I, I, as we go through it, I and mean, like we kind of look for a reason why. And that's like when you talked at the start, we talked about like tribal knowledge, and and my, you know, I kind of laid it down to this like ownership and exclusivity, and like, I think it's okay. Like into it, we have to we have to also nurture the difficulty. Like that there are certain things which cannot be surpassed. So how do we deal with it? And so they often say, it's like, it's not about what you go through. It's how you go through it that will define you. It's the way that when you answered in that interview, you got me on that one, but yes. I, would, I would go to Google and I would search and say, I think this might be kind of what, it, what I would start with, but We'll, we'll see how it goes, right? So uh, it, it, it's, it, it's crazy that we, we think we can break this stuff. And like when we mm -hmm. go to scale, we're simply going to highlight, like I say, I always joke with people, I said, you know, I started running, you know, because I, I'm a cyclist, yes. but I started running mm -hmm. because I, it's hard to carry a bike everywhere. And I travel. <laughs> and someone's like, hey, well, I hear like running's bad for your knees. I'm like, well, it depends, right? I said, running mm -hmm. doesn't create knee problems. It finds them. Ah, okay. If you do it right, it doesn't cause the problem, but very quickly highlight body imbalances and all these weird things that happen. So, you know, as I, you know, I hate to leave like an open-ended thing as we close up, JJ, but really it's okay for us to struggle. Yes. It's okay for us to need help. Absolutely. And, and the best thing we can do to create inclusivity is if we want to do it at scale, we got to do it locally. <laughs> what do we, they say? Global politics, you start local. <laughs> right. And, and really, you know, there's, there's so much that we can do. And so here's, JJ, you are the, you've got so much capability in coding, but you can tell it in a story that mm -hmm. makes anybody want to go farther with figuring it out behind you. And that's a, a magical thing. If you're, if someone comes to you and this is it, we'll close up with this one. JJ, I don't know how to code, but I want to figure out how to do more with Kubernetes or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. How do I get started? And I know that's like the worst thing to say with two minutes to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I truly believe that the first, the wrong word, but right word of virgin take 
of a project is one of the most valuable things any engineer, any developer, any, anybody can have. And that feedback, that day one taste of what your project does. The ability to look and say, you can't code? Cool. Can you read some documentation and tell me if this makes any sense whatsoever? Can you copy paste this stuff in to say that this project can get started? Oh, it turns out all the links were busted and it said YAML instead of JSON. That's probably a problem, right? Like yeah. the, the ability to, and, and then teach them how to put that PR in to fix that thing. And then all of a sudden, you now have taught a person to fish. So they can start looking at the other stuff around the project. And then before they know it, they're like, huh, there's a spelling mistake inside this app. I'm going to go ahead and grep through this thing because I, or maybe, or just search through this, this application and look for that word and change it. Wait a second. You just put a PR in to fix some code, didn't you? Congratulations. You're a developer, <laughs> right? And, and that story is so, so valuable to to open source projects and to communities that who like, I'm a horrible developer. What I'm really good at is, is to your point, narratives and being able to bring those together. And I have really smart developers that I lean on when I'm like, I don't know how this works, please help. And, and they, they were more than willing to help with me because I built a relationship. But the beauty of it is, is day one tastes or day zero tastes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. When, and docs are so, so valuable because you're paying that back to that next person who comes in, who might not be, or who might be an amazing developer. And instead of them wasting their time trying to get the app to actually start up and running because they have to fix all the docs, you've, you've already paved that road for them. So they can hit the ground running and get that feature in or whatever. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's funny. I think the biblical term is like the unwashed or the unwashed yeah. masses, right? It's, it's people go. that should not, they, there's no reason why they should have this capability and the skill. How can we bring them towards it? And I think that's the perfect close, right? The best thing we can do to make people feel included is to participate, listen, and Google. It's like Google plus Rolodex, you know, <laughs> connects them with the next step. Exactly. And, and help them through that journey. And That's with that, great. JJ, I thank you for being my, my human Google for mm -hmm. so much. Uh, and how do folks find you online if they want to get connected? Uh, best place is usually Twitter, uh, at JJ Asgar, uh, JJ, A-S-G-H-A-R. Um, and please don't hesitate to ping me. Um, I, I genuinely believe this. I'm here to help. Um, all you got to do is ask. And if I don't know the right answer, I will find someone who can at least get you down that path. That's the best thing we can all do for each other. JJ, thank you very much. Thank you.